We are live. Nice. Welcome, Mr. Joel de Belfet. Did I say that right? You said it absolutely right. Thank you. Awesome. Welcome to Bridge the Gap. My name is Holden Stefan Roy. And basically, it's the show where we talk to, um, well, I like to think super interesting people, such as yourself, uh, for multiple reasons. Normally, it's more on the creative professional side of things, but as this election has kind of transpired and moved into its more active cycle, I was just like, oh, I don't know who to vote for. And uh, instead of relying on the medias and all that to come through, I figured I would just go ahead and talk to y'all as much as possible, make these episodes, trying to get to know you a bit better. And typically, we just try to like go through people's lives a bit and understand who you are and then have the conversation flow. So in a sense, like we just do it like it will be if you were a rapper or anybody else. But in the sense that, you know, at the same time, getting to learn about you, your views with the politics. And honestly, I'm kind of excited to hear about what you've been up to. I know a little bit what you've been up to. And it's actually kind of cool for like being the local Loyola city councilor candidate guy for where I'm at in terms of this. So it's really uh, cool for you to come through and be a part of the show. Well, I appreciate you uh, having me on here, Holden. Um, so with that, uh, we'd like to start it off almost like a chronological exploration of your life. So where do you come from? Like, where, where are you born? Where does that start? It's, uh, it's, uh, how long is this, uh, is this video cast? <laughs> Yo, uh, we can run it. I mean, my Mondays are like normally like they're longer cause rappers and we, we're good. So I have time. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I'll try and make it as, uh, as interesting and as brief as I can. Um, so basically uh, I'm originally from the uh, West Island of, uh, of Montreal and a tad bit further in a city called Pancor. Um, I was adopted at seven and a half months uh, by a French uh, Quebecer, Canadian, um, as well as a British mother. Uh, from that sort of adoptive family, uh, I had a sister, unfortunately she passed away a few years ago. Um, my dad had since remarried whew, about 30 years ago. And from there, I have uh, an adopted sister uh, from China. I've got two brothers. Um, and I also, back in 2002, found my biological family that actually ironically happened to live in NDG on the uh, Darlington side. Um, so I caught up with them and found out that my roots uh, originally are from Guyana, so in South America, and um, I'm kind of a mix of uh, Portuguese, Chinese, um, Arawak Indian, which is similar to East Indian, um, and Venezuelan. So I'm a, a good mix. Um, so basically, grew up in Pankwar. Uh, till around uh, 13 years old. I've always been kind of a entrepreneur, sort of I want to, you know, do things myself to try and see, you know, what I want to do in life and, you know, want to continue to do in life. So uh, I actually uh, have skills as a barber. And uh, when I was 13, I started cutting some of my friend's hair. And back in the day, uh, around 1990, I saw an ad in the uh, Montreal Gazette for a barbershop called Tough Cuts, which was owned by Gary T, 
who you probably know, Gary Thompson. Um, so I was there for about a year and a half. The barbershop is at the corner of uh, Mackenzie and Victoria, up top across from the Curry House. And uh, yeah, I'm was, pretty sure I've had my hair cut there, all things considered. I'm pretty sure at some point in my life that happened. <laughs> so, uh, so that was actually the same time I was going to high school at McDonald High School in St. Anne's. And um, I don't know, I just, I wanted to, you know, keep cutting hair. Uh, so I actually opened up, I think it was around 15 and a half, 16. I opened up my own barbershop in St. Anne's on the Strip and uh, had that for about three years. Oh, how, how do you open up a barbershop at 16 years? You got you got to go into that a little bit. You might not find it super interesting. Trust me, everyone else is going to find that super interesting. <laughs> okay, so I started, like I said, I was working at, at Gary T's for about year and a half. I was 15 years old. I was a grade uh, 10 or grade going into grade 11. And not only was I cutting, obviously, clients at Gary's at Tough Cuts, I was cutting uh, the hair of my fellow students at Mac High. And um, what I was doing, I was actually cutting their hair in the girls' locker room because the guys' locker room didn't have uh, an outlet. And it got back to one of the parents uh, that this guy named Joel was cutting hair in the girls' locker room on lunch hour. Um, and then, ironically, one of the uh, one of my friend's parents actually had was getting their haircut at an existing barbershop in St. Anne's. So it got back to me from one of the friends that said, hey, Sonia Jean, the barber, wants to talk to you. Um, and I was like, for what? And she's, you know, obviously they, she wanted to talk to me about possibly working for her. Um, so at 16, uh, she took me on um, as a barber. So I worked there, I think it was uh, Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. Um, and then it just kind of, you know, spiraled out of that. Uh, about two years later, we had a falling out. And uh, I was approached by a gentleman by the name of Rob, who used to own um, a video salon down in St. Anne's. So obviously, I, you've probably been to St. Anne's. But when you come in... Yeah, I went to Abbott. Yeah. Yeah, so when you come into St. Anne's from Abbott, heading west, um, there's uh, where all the taxis pull up near the Kushtar, where there's a little white building there. Um, before it goes in, it's by itself. It's kind of across the street uh, from the Kushtar, 57 Rue St. Anne. So he owned the video store there, and um, his lease was up, and he had money, and he said, well, look, I like the way you cut hair. I'm an investor. I'll invest in, you know, getting this up. So that's how it works. So I got a lucky break there. So basically went back to Sonia and told her, sorry, I'm moving up the street. I'm going to be your competitor now. Hmm. And that was great. That that worked for three years. I got to know a lot of people uh, in San Anne de Bellevue. Um, all the, uh, the the cadets from the uh, the police, uh, the police academy at John Abbott were there um that came in i used to cut their hair all the bar owners annie's casera when it was around um a lot a lot of you know people uh, as well as people from john abbott and then after that so that you're looking at uh, around 1995 so basically uh, you're like everybody's therapist for three years more or less more or less yeah i listen i listen very well <laughs> and um 
So after that, I um, ventured to Cornwall. I met a girl and I ventured to Cornwall. And um, that was 95 and a half, 96. Um, and I started going back and forth from my salon to Cornwall, back and forth from my salon. But a lot of the time, the staff that I was work had working there were saying, Joel, people are asking for you. You can't keep going back and forth now. Um, so basically, uh, the, the salon, you know, kind of took a, took a dive. Um, I was more, you know, engaged with, uh, trying to find love <laughs> than I was to, uh, do business. On the uh, road, though, it's a bit of a compliment to you though, if you think yeah. about that, right? Because the yeah. place literally required you to function. It, yeah, ex well, exactly, exactly. Um, so basically after that, I mean, of course, the relationship didn't work out uh, after, you know, six months. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, so I was basically stuck in Cornwall, uh, the middle of nowhere. And uh, so I got a job actually cutting hair um, in uh, in Cornwall at uh, One Water Street. So basically there's like a big mall there, well, the, the only mall essentially there. And uh, I was cutting uh, hair over there and I got a job because it wasn't enough money at Nichols uh, cooking uh, first as a dishwasher then I kind of moved my way up and then uh, I eventually moved back in the ice storm 98 in January um, back to Dorian and uh, was ice storm hit Cornwall uh, I, I, I I don't remember I just I'm talking I went back to Montreal mm. um, in 98 in the ice storm and okay. uh, with with some friends in Dorian and um, started working at the Nichols that used, I don't think it's there anymore, that used to be there. So it was just basically kind of a transfer. Um, and at the same time that I was doing that, I saw another ad in the paper for uh, Jack Astor's looking for a cook on Sources Boulevard. Um, so again, I, you know, I needed to, you know, get some money. So I took that on. I, I went there. Uh, they essentially hired me on the spot. Um, and then after six months, I uh, became a supervisor and um, won uh, Top Gun of the Year, which was uh, the Employee of the Year. Uh, and uh, uh, Hold on. If y'all have not been to Jackasters, though, it's a vibe. It's, oh, it's go. great. Yeah. And it used to be, I don't know how crazy it is now, but, uh, you know, it was... Uh, it was insane. It was a great restaurant to work at, great place to network. Food is excellent as well. Um, and then I've always had, let's rewind a little bit. I've always had two jobs um, up until about 10, 12, 13 years ago. So basically a day job slash a night job and the night job would always be the restaurant. Um, so after Jack Astor's, uh, a friend of mine named Chris was a restaurant manager, assistant manager at the airport uh, under Host Marriott. Well, it's basically a, you know, a group that owns all the restaurants and cafes inside the airport. Um, so he asked me, he's like, look, do you want to try your hand at this? Um, as assistant manager, I'll speak with, you know, my boss and see if I can get you in. That worked out. Um, so I began being the assistant manager for, I was on the, uh, the Canadian side. So Moe's was there, uh, expectations, just a, a few of the, you know, regular restaurants. And so that was good. That was a, a difference from actually cooking the food, um, full time. Um, but I still had that part-time job. 
uh, working uh, at nighttime after I finished a restaurant at Babaloo's. You remember that right beside Bourbon Street was a, you know, kind of a nightclub, supper club. And I used to work there in the kitchen. And that was in 2007. Um, but before that, because we're still, keep in mind, we're still in. Actually, I do remember that now that I'm thinking about it. I was in the West Island in 2007 working at the Super Club Videotron uh, yeah. Sources. Yeah, but rewind that a bit. I just threw in, I just jumped about six years. Um, while I was at the airport, um, I, again, was doing Babaloo's. But I also um, wanted to kind of get out of the restaurant scene. I wanted to kind of. I wouldn't say suit, but just be more, uh, not, not be so dirty all the time. And uh, a friend of mine worked uh, for a company called uh, David Kurt uh, and Viacan. They were custom brokers. And um, basically, you know, sh she just said, look, I know you're, you're here. I know you. I know your worth ethics. And uh, would you like to, you know, be a kind of a custom entry? Would you like to be a raider? So basically, any, you know, import, um, from the States or, or anywhere else in the world, you'd be rating these shipments that would come in. Um, so I spoke with Chris, I said, look, um, you know, I've been here for about a year and a half now. Uh, it's great, but I wanna try and change myself a little bit here. And I'm, I'm gonna, sorry to leave you, you know, basically hanging, but I'm gonna try this opportunity with David Kirsch. Um, so I went there, uh, that was very interesting. I, great you get to see all the products uh well on paper coming in uh you know kind of basically what makes the city um become a city because everything you look at is either fabricated here or it's imported um so we had a really good hand in um in, in involved with all the can shipments you, that were coming in can you like elaborate a little bit on that everything that makes a city thing that you just said like i caught it but just in case other people didn't catch it like the imported versus created here like what exactly that gives you the insight well, over yeah okay so basically uh wood um you know there's trees here but some of the trees or the wood sorry so the end product um could be imported from the states and finished here, right? So like a table, um, walls, uh, you know, cement, anything that you basically see is either, like I said, made here or uh, it's partially brought in and finished here or the uh, product is finished in the States and then imported into Canada and then vice versa going back and forth. So basically uh, Canada has a treaty with the States uh, and Quebec alone, I believe it's 2.4, 2.2 billion of import exports floods back and forth between probably not now because of the pandemic, but between Quebec and, and the United States, um, for the rest of Canada, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, count, um, figure out, you know, those numbers, but basically custom broker just clears everything and anything that, you know, small businesses, large businesses want to bring in. And I had a hand, uh, in doing that. So you would get to literally see the, the, the trade in action, giving you an insight. Well, yeah, through, through documents. Yeah, through documentation. Um, you know, we have actually had a lot of clothes importers as well, um, where they would bring in, they would buy, you know, shirts and pants in, uh, in Italy. Uh, you know, and <laughs> it's crazy because the cost of goods, it, you know, in Italy of shirts, like we saw uh, real Versace, 
clothing on, you know, through their paperwork where it was like $10.90 euro, okay, that they're importing, okay? And cr crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Um, so basically you have to factor in, not that they're, I wouldn't say screwing us, but that there's a lot of extra cogs or extra costs of, of goods besides, you know, the shirt that go into it, right? So there's transportation from A to Z, uh, customs brokers, logistics, uh, and so on. And then finally, when it gets to your door, uh, it's now $150 for a pair of pounds or more, right? Um, so back to Kirsch. So I worked there. I quit there because there was another company that was offering me more money called Quebec Custom Brokers. That was in around 2004. Um, and then I worked there for a bit, worked at Babalu's. So I was doing the same job that I was doing at David Kirsch at Quebec Custom Brokers. So all in all, I was a custom broker for about seven years. Um, and I worked at various restaurants as a line cook, uh, supervisor at Jack Astor's. Um, and then 2008, I was still on the kick of the whole transportation, uh, import, uh, you know, uh, and stuff. And so I applied for a job, um, but I actually got asked for a job, um, with traffic tech, uh, with, yeah. So, uh, the owner, Brian, uh, saw me one night at finishing my shift at, uh, at Babalu's and uh, you know, he had known that I had a background in, in transportation and logistics and he was building his, his team larger. And he, he asked me if I wanted to, uh, you know, partake in, in his business. And he's, and I, you know, told him, look, I'm working here now, but I'll, you know, I'll give you a call if, if anything changes. So it was a couple of, a couple of months later or a few weeks later, I, you know, I just wanted to change again. I picked up the phone, called him and, uh, he and the CEO, Paul, um basically said no we've got an opening um for a regional director in our south shore office would you be interested um let's go to uh, ribbon reef and uh let's talk about it so they brought me to ribbon reef fed me lots of wine and steak and convinced me to leave where i was um and and take on this uh this job at, at traffic tech as regional director so for about three months in 08 so from march till around june july uh, i did training in their office um uh, on cotelies which has moved now to the 20 um learned what needed to be to be learned and then uh, basically gave me the keys and the reins to uh the uh, south shore office that was in uh that's in brossard uh, and there was about 16 people uh, that worked there was there for three years. Uh, I met my wife there, uh, ironically, um, and we've been together uh, ever since for three, uh, 13 years. And we've got a 10-year-old son who's turning 11 uh, next month. Um, but before that, Brian, so the owner of Traffic Tech, had told me when he hired me, he's like, Joel, he's like, make sure that there's no funny business going on between you and, and the staff members. Um, you know, obviously in, in, he's talking about, you know, the women in the office, we don't want you mingling <laughs> with, uh, with the, the ladies in the office. So I said, sure, no problem. Um, three years later, so that was in, I don't even remember now. I think it was, uh, yeah, 2011. Um, I get a phone call from, from corporate and I can see, you know, it was Brian 
on the on the display and I picked it up and he's like, Joel, I said, yes. He's like, what am I hearing? And then I hear Paul in the background, who's the CEO, Joel, I'm hearing things, talk to me. So I was playing stupid because I had a feeling where they were going and they said, what is this I'm hearing? What did I tell you? What was the number one rule that I told you? Um, you know, when I hired you and I said, yes, I know, I know. Um, he said, well, look, it's either you gotta go or you gotta get rid of, well, not my wife, Tony. And uh, so I said, okay, well, let me talk to her and I'll see what's, uh, what, what, what's the best thing to do. And uh, so I spoke to her and we ended up deciding that I should fire her <laughs> and then uh, me stay on. And uh, so we gave her a good package and, and, and that was that. And I continued on and then uh, it just kind of fizzled out in around February or March, 2011. And then Tony and I were kind of like, well, you know, what should we do now? We need to, you know, still make some money. Um, so we used our clients that we had before, um, and then some that we were reaching out to, to basically form our own logistics and transportation company. And that was called Toll Logistics, T-O-L-E. Um, so, and now, so, so traffic tech, and I know what that is because in 2010-ish or 11, or no, around then, my ex-girlfriend at the time was working there in the, the Cotelias office. So I actually remember sitting out there and shit, waiting for her in days. So I know <laughs> I've been inside it before. Yeah, y'all did the truck great. dispatching, right? So like, it's basically like y'all would have the trucks out there and then you would match like loads to people and kind of coordinate the whole thing, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we, we didn't have trucks. We would, it, we would broker yeah. out the trucks. We would, we would, you know, pound the phones for the trucks um, because we had a load that needed to move from A to B. And, you know, the truck would say it's a thousand. We'd charge the truck, uh, the client 1500, make the, you know, the profit of 500 and, and so on. Um, so that's what I was doing. And then, um, you know, back to, back to 2011, um, that's when Tony and I decided to um, incorporate Toll Logistics. And um, we had that office um, on the South Shore uh, we had 10 employees, uh, a few dispatchers, a few sales. Uh, we purchased uh, a cube truck because we wanted to kind of do the local deliveries as well. Um, and we had three 53-foot trucks that we um, that they would only work for us. Um, and then, you know, things happen. We lost that business. Um, and then it started to go downhill uh for us for me I'm, I'm not afraid to you know say that everybody hits rock bottom so i hit rock bottom uh collectively you know with my family and uh which was unfortunate and uh was a, a definite life lesson and uh about so that was in around uh, 14 2014 15 and then uh 2016 turned it around uh, got involved in the capital markets, uh, which is totally different uh, than than you know what I had essentially taught myself and, and learned, uh, which was you know transportation and then the restaurants and stuff like that. And um, basically, I was on the PRIR side of things, so public relations, investor relations side of things, where I had to um, you know 
uh, uh, pitch the company to potential, uh, you know, investors or shareholders and basically uh, create documentation uh, for the clients so that they can, you know, send it off uh, to people that were interested in, in partaking into the company. Um, and that was with a company called Momentum PR, um, which was, it was fantastic. Uh, I learned a lot of things. Um, we had clients that were, um, in the mining, uh, tech, you know, so gold and silver, uh, cannabis companies. Um, so I was working with them when there was that, you know, the boom of legalization, uh, for both on 2.0 for the, the drinks too. Um, and then uh, one of the clients that I had actually brought to um, to Momentum um, was a co-packing company uh, called GrowPacker. Uh, they're a U.S. company, but inked uh, in a Ontario. Co-packing company. Co-packing is basically the company will or companies send them send the co-packer products to basically repack. So like Coca-Cola has multiple bottling and re re. Uh, uh, co-packing companies to basically because it can't be everywhere at, at once right so, so they'll say like, like third parties that just do packaging for other people absolutely yeah understood yeah That's so cool. grow packer um you know so take that into uh into concept that that it was obviously it was cannabis and, and hemp that um was being packaged and repackaged um whether, you know, gummies, this is all in the States. It was a California company before, you know, legalization and stuff like that. And there's still a, a, a California company. So it was completely legal over in, in the state of California. So uh, gummies, uh, you know, soaps, lotions, creams, uh, basically you name it that can be infused in it, they co-pack beverages as well. Um, and I was a vice president of development for them, business development, and uh, we're bringing clients to them so that they can co-pack for them. Um, so basically yeah, you had to roll with the legal side of weed and set up some business. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. I so, would love to hear the off cam stories you can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically it was all the clients, of course, uh, you know, that I was, you know, communicating with were, you know, in the States, um, because back then, it, well, back then, four or five years ago, it wasn't, you know, entirely uh, uh, legal, uh, but in the state of California, it was. So the clients that I were approaching um, were, you know, from the states that had existing, uh, you know, licensing and products already. Um, and I said, well, look, you know, we've got this big facility in Desert Hot Springs, California. We can do this, 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 and this. Are you interested? Here's the price list, and then so on. Um, so that paid extremely well, um, so much so that I said, I, I, I'm, I'm leaving the PR company um, and I just, I'm fine. I'm going to, you know, do my consulting uh, that, uh, you know, that is basically, you know, paying the bills right now. And that's, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and then because of that, I, uh, in 2019, 2018, 2018-2019, I was approached or received an email uh, from a client uh, out of the States and they were looking to basically go public on the OTC, so the over-the-counter uh, exchange in the States. And uh, so I guess they had heard of me through, you know, Googling 
Um, and, uh, you know, so they sent me over the information on the company. Uh, and it was a skincare brand uh, called Beauty Kitchen, um, which was formed in uh, 2012. It's a celebrity skincare brand. Um, and so I looked at it. I liked it. And I said, well, look, um, I do consulting for this other company that's a public company and I'm an independent director for them. Um, I think this could be a fit where it could add shareholder value to them and it could get you what you want, which is, you know, to be a public company. So we went back and forth, back and forth. She, you know, she loved the idea. Um, we inked, so we incorporated a company uh, about a year and a half ago called Mariana Naturals. Um, to pay homage to my partner, whose uh, name is Heather Mariana. She's a A to B uh, type celebrity in the States. Um, that is the one that founded Beauty Kitchen back in 2012. So we wanted to create a, a company name that still had her, you know, her name involved in it. Um, and that is going great. Uh, I'm the CEO of uh, Mariana Naturals, uh, co-founder with, with Heather uh, in the States. And so basically what happens is the products get um, manufactured and produced out of the states, out of Border City, Nevada. And then um, we ship it cross-border. I've got a warehouse uh, here on just off sources on, uh, on Brunswick where we store, um, you know, our products here. And then any sales that come through our e-commerce, um, if it's in Canada, it gets shipped there. If it's in the States, well, obviously it gets shipped out of um, our United States facility. Um, so that's essentially me on, you know, on my business side of things. Um, you know, I just got to throw out there that that's a remarkably impressive CV. Thank you. <laughs> it's, right. It didn't come easy, let me tell you. Uh, you know, when you hit rock bottom, it, it's, it's, it's really hard to, um, you know, come up if you don't have, you know, the support, the mental, uh, you know, support from, you know, friends and family. Um, you know, people that are close to you that can kind of, you know, help you, you know, kind of get back on your feet. And, you know, it wasn't me alone, right? So I had my wife and my son. Um, I also have a 26-year-old stepdaughter. Um, thankfully, she wasn't living with us at the time, so she didn't have to, you know, go through that. Um, but um, it's more or less a, a mindset um, as well as, you know, keeping with those who do good for you. So meaning if, if, you know, rub shoulders with people who you want to, I wouldn't say resemble because you have to be, you know, yourself as an individual, but if you want to, you know, possibly succeed, well, you're not going to hang around and associate with people that are, you know, negative in your life, right? If you hang around with positive people, you know, then positive things, uh, you know, should, um, you know, I say should because nothing's set in stone, but should happen for you. Um, and so that's what I started doing. I started just, you know, my mindset was uh, completely different and, uh, you know, opportunities just, you know, kept on falling in my lap and, um, you know, that, that's basically what happened. Um, but to touch a little the bit. The fact that you could scale from like, I'm working at the random restaurant down there doing some basic yeah. stuff to... Yeah, no, we just got a warehouse over here running our little e-commerce site. Oh, you little drop shippers. That's, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, again, it didn't come easy. It was, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of hard work, a lot of sleepless nights. 
um, you know, and, and just determination basically. And that's, and that's what I have. Um, and to not to, to touch base, because I find it's, you know, extremely important and, and, you know, important for, you know, the people that are listening, um, basically, um, my, I guess it's kind of what brought me to, you know, being a candidate in Loyola, um, back in, in 2009, uh, my family and I and, and, and myself experienced something that not essentially, but entirely changed my life, um, you know, for the better, um, even though, you know, with every bad, usually there comes good of it. Um, and, and that's, you know, fortunately what happened. So in, in 2009, um, I was pulled over by uh, police on the South Shore um, and uh, they pulled me over. I found out uh, years later, or not years later, sorry, the next year in, in 2010, that um, the Belfay sounded like a Quebecer's name and not that of somebody that was black or any other origin, okay? So that statement alone changed, changed my life and my family's life like, you know, tenfold. Um, and I found that out in court. Um, because I had received, um, I was driving on the, on the South Shore. Um, all I drive is BMWs. Um, love the way they drive. It's been 17 years since I've been driving them. And they're all used. They're brand new. Um, for some reason, an officer wanted to turn around and after he crossed me and, and follow us. And, uh, you know, I had already been pulled over about three times that week. Jumped out of the car. Um, really upset and basically said, you know, what's going on? Why are you stopping us? I'm in the car with my, my wife, my dog, you know, uh, my stepdaughter and uh, her niece. Um, my son wasn't born at the time. And uh, what's going on? He, he basically said to me, he said, is this your car? Hey, guy, is this your car? And, uh, you know, just it was so disrespectful. Um to just, you know, utter the words and automatically assume that the car wouldn't belong to me. Uh, I'm not going to go joyriding with a dog in the car. asking if you were driving your kids to school because they remember that. Uh, well, that's a second um, case. Um, so the, I'll, you, you'll, whoever that is, you'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear me get to the second case. Um, so basically, and uh, so I said, I said, why, like, is, what, what do you mean is this my car? Uh, I'm not going to have my wife, my dog, my stepdaughter and niece in the car driving to go to the Dairy Queen um, just around the corner if I, you know, decided to steal this car or whatever he was assuming in his head. I just did not. Uh, it didn't sit well with me. Um, I said, you know, and he, and he kept on saying, is this your, you know, is this your car? Get, show me your ID. And I said, no, I, I want to. I want to hear this from a supervisor because I don't believe that you have the right, um, you know, to ask me without providing, ask me for my identification without providing me uh, an absolute, and that's in bold, absolute reason as to why you're pulling me over. You know, asking if this is your car is not a viable or legal reason to demand somebody for identification. It has to be. You ran a light, you ran a stop, you did this, 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 right? Breach of the highway safety code. Um, so finally, after 15 minutes, the supervisor did come 
and explained to me that um, if that was him, I would have thrown your ass in jail uh, because you didn't provide the ID when asked. Um, so that kind of went back and forth. I showed my ID. Then he told me, he said, you're going to get the tickets in the mail. I said, okay. One for not showing the ID to the officer and the other for lapsed insurance. So the insurance was lapsed by two or three days and the envelope was on my, like I have envelopes here, unopened envelopes on my desk, which I didn't switch out in, in, my, in my dash. So that was my fault. Um, three months later, I'm, I was at work at, at Traffic Tech and uh, my wife, Tony, called me and she said, Joel, she goes, uh, there's bailiffs here. I said, what? What do you mean bailiffs? And uh, she says, I think it has to do with your tickets. And uh, so she basically, I said, well, open them. And uh, sure enough, they had decided to, the city of Longueuil had decided to send the tickets uh, via bailiff. Um, wow. and, yeah, it was crazy. One was, I think it was 525 or $523. And the other was, I don't know, 50 or 60 bucks for the lapse insurance. So I paid the lapse insurance one because I, I was at fault. Um, and the other, I was just like, you know what, like this is, this is crazy. And, and again, going back, uh, you know, $500 is $500 regardless, you know, whatever it is. So she's like, this is expensive. Like you did show your ID. I was there. Like we need to fight this. Uh, so I signed the back of the ticket, mailed it in or send it in, whatever it is that you have to do. And nine months later, I received a, a, it's a pink sheet with basically the notice to appear to go to court. Uh, and that was for June 1st, 2010. So something, as the date approached closer of June, something in me was telling me that this is, this is so, this is, was solely, because I, I, sorry, I'm, I'm very matter of fact, but at the same time, a very practical person and logical person. So I was like, you know, something is telling me here that race is involved here, okay? But I'm not one to cry wolf. I'm not, you know, it's I'll hear you first before I'm going to, you know, judge and stuff like that. And you don't want to throw out stuff like that because it could, you know, hurt somebody emotionally and, you know, career-wise as well, right? So, but something, I had that devil on my shoulder telling me I need to gather information, so I don't know, but what I did, I, I printed out, a, uh, I thought for some reason back then that printing out a picture uh, of my mother and father, okay, basically show that they're white. I, I don't know why I did that um, and that they were well known, um, you know, in Quebec for, you know, going, doing good things that this might help me. Um, I, and, and I don't know, I printed out some, some other documentation as well, um, but my mother, my adopted mother, Betty Chambers, uh, she's, uh, she was a professor at, uh, at Concordia University. She got a doctorate there, uh, and PhD, uh, in philosophy. My father's a consultant. He's Andre de Belfay. He's, you know, done work for the National Film Board, SPVM, ironically, Pratt and & Whitney, and so on. Um, so I, for some reason, thought that that information would help me go to court. So I went to court and, um... I was told 
by um, CRAR, which you may have heard, Phone Yemi. Uh, CRAR is the Center for Research on Race Relations. They're an organization that helps um, right. people with their human rights and stuff. He had told me, make sure you ask for a copy of the police report. And I'm emphasizing this to anybody who's listening that gets pulled over the police and you want to fight a, a, a case, you have to get a copy of that police report because they're mandated that once they give you a ticket, they jump back in their car and they go back to do their paperwork at their office. They have to write a report about that and it's available to you. Um, so I asked the prosecutor, actually, no, she asked me, she said, so I said, sure, yeah, no problem. I, pulled, I looked at it, the first, and there's actually a copy of, of the report on my Twitter page. Um, there is a, they, they wrote in French, en circulant sur la rue Churchill, on a vu un BMW noir uh, qui était conduit par un homme de race noire. Uh, suite à l'enquête de la plaque, nous avons vu que le nom de Bellefeuille sonne comme un nom québécois, puis non pour un homme de race noire, ni pour une autre origine. So right there, I didn't even read, and it's what I said to you in English before, yeah. I didn't even read the rest. I, I lost it, and... You know, the officers. That's like, like, like I mean, ten. That's like, you know, it, it's that's blatant. I mean, well, you don't exactly. get more blatant than that. You, do, you don't. And and the officers were sitting, you know, eight seats away from me, and my blood was boiling beyond boiling. But of course, you got, you know, you're in court. You got to keep it cool. You can't even chew gum right in court. So I, I had to. That. I had to keep my cool. Um, what turned out to be supposed to a 15 or 20 minutes, uh, you know, court case turned into a two hour and 45 minute court case where the officer in question who wrote the report, you know, stood there. Yeah, I swear to tell the truth, da, 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 and went on and had the gall to tell the court uh, that if in French, if I see, uh, you know, an Asian person with the last name Laporte, I'm gonna pull him over too. If I see uh, a woman named uh, Catherine that's you know being driven by a man, I'm gonna pull them over too. And I didn't have a lawyer with me, and I wasn't very well versed on you know when you should talk or not to talk. But I was always wanting to talk because I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, right? Four months later, I get the uh, decision in the mail, which was, uh, I was guilty. And I had to pay the $523, $25 ticket uh, on the grounds of the Highway Safety Code, I think it's 636 Act, um, where uh, when requested to show your identification, you have to show your identification. And, um, but yes, there uh, was uh, uh, racial profiling in this case. However, there are courts that deal with that solely. So he was referring, the judge was referring to the Human Rights Tribunal. So, so this court was like, they totally did you wrong. You yeah. still have to pay the fee and go deal with those guys. Yeah. So we made a big stink about that with Prar. 
It was all over the news. Um, and uh, we appealed that decision to the Superior Court uh, of Appeal. And they granted us uh, the opportunity to appeal that uh, decision. So we were there, three judges, Superior Court at uh, whatever, uh, Notre Dame. And uh, they heard, and it took them about another two to three months, and they came up with a decision that the judge, in first instance, had erred, E-R-R-E-D, on the decision, and that every judge that gets sworn in as a judge across Canada is legally mandated and obliged to hear and decide on anything that has to do with the charter, okay? So any breach of your rights, whether it's the you know Quebec Charter or the Human Rights Charter, they have to hear. They can't just pass the buck. Um, and so he said, this needs to go to a different judge and cannot be heard by the same one. So I got the opportunity to have my case heard by another judge. And uh, four, five, six months later, in a 66-page decision in, I think it was November, December 2012, I won that case. And those two officers uh, were cited for racially profiling me. So now they have a permanent mark on their file that they racially profiled me, that it was an illegal interception. And um, all over the decision was the words racial profiling. In French, profilage racial. Um, there was so many. That's a, we just got a question. Was there anything for the judge? Or did the judge just get away with it, the one who erred? And... No, no. He, he, what he got was obviously bad press because his name was, was you know, peppered uh, everywhere, littered all over, you know, the, the, the media. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what happened to him, but um, the two officers, they, they, they received those fines. Uh, well, sorry, citation. And they received five days suspension without pay. And that was it. Um, we... When I say we, it's Crar and myself um, also were asking for 30,000 in damages, okay? What we learned was that, and again, if anybody's listening, uh, if you are whatever, if you're, if you're whatever color, visible minority or non, and you feel that your rights as a person are being violated um, in a stop, in an interception, you have to invoke whatever it is that you feel is going wrong with you. So in my instance, I felt that I was being racially profiled. I had to invoke that at the time of the interception. So the time that he turned on his sirens to follow me and stop me and said, hey guys, this is your car. I had to say, I feel that you're racially profiling. Okay. Why? Because if I want to receive a monetary compensation, there has to be proof that the other side, so the police or the city, were aware that I was claiming that I was racially profiled. And like I told you about 10 minutes ago, I'm somebody that's very trusting, and I 
you know, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to cry wolf and start, you know, people say the race card. I wasn't about that. I felt it, but I wasn't going to speak it at the time of the stop. So, yeah. so quite literally, you're saying yeah. that unless you make a noise in a moment, you're just going to be completely disregarded down the line, which is for mon a monetary compensation. If you, yeah. if you, yeah. So, so that's that still a pretty big incentive that if something happens well, for you to say something. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's very important to, you know, to speak up, um, you know, at the time during after. And, and so because I only received the letter to go to court on June 1st, 2010, when the incident happened in on July 9th, the year before, that's already almost 10 and a half months of time that has lapsed. So I was already, so meaning before I filed my complaint with the Quebec Human Rights Commission, I was already, I had, the time had already lapsed. So there was no way I would be able to be compensated at $30,000. I won from a, a, you know, personal standpoint and, 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 you know, proving a point standpoint that I did nothing wrong and that the police profiled me. But from a monetary standpoint, I didn't receive a dime. That's um, wild. Yeah. So that's why it's very important that you have to say that. And, and I still, um, you know, think about it sometimes that if you do do that, you're, you're almost, you know, accusing before, you know, again, you're accusing before knowing the actual facts. Maybe this wasn't the circumstances. Maybe you had a bad day or whatever. You know, you, you got to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, you also can't steer away from who you are as an individual, right? You've got to, if you feel that you're being, you know, trampled on and your your rights are being violated or, or whatever it is, I strongly believe that you got to, you know, kind of stand up and voice those concerns, right? Because it, it, it's your pride at the same time. If you got a family, you're, you're, you're looking out with your, for your family as well. Um, dignity, right? Um, so back to a bit of the question um, that somebody had about the uh, 2012 uh, incident. So in that same year, while I was waiting for the decision of the December 2012, in March 2012, um, my wife and I and niece were bringing my son Jax, uh, he was 17 months at the time, to uh, a home daycare, those $7 home daycares. And uh, we were on the South Shore and it was a four-way intersection and uh, we crossed uh, there was a, there was a police on the left and, you know, there was cars at every point. Right. So, and because there was an officer there, people were kind of hesitant who should go first. Um, and I was, I'm going to go first. So I just started to drive through and they turned. And so we were, you know, parallel to each other. Um, looked at my wife. I said, I bet you under bucks are going to turn around because they just looked over. And again, this was in a BMW, it's a silver BMW at the time. And uh, sure enough, I look, they did a U-turn in a driveway, came back, followed us, followed us, followed us. I did a mental check. Okay, is my license good? Is my insurance good? Uh, registration, am I a tenant too? Am I, you know, lights out, everything was perfect. I come to a stop, I look, still weren't sure if they were, because I didn't want to assume. Um, cause he made an ass out of you and me with the suit. So I leaned 
went kind of like went through the stop sign, looked, wanted to see if they were going to turn right. They didn't. They kept on. Put my signal, turn left, turn left. Then they paused. But there was no stop sign. And I look back at my rear view and I saw them stop there. And I'm like, there's no cars that are going by for them to turn on. So then that gave me concrete, uh, uh, you know, proof that they were coming after me for some unknown reason. Uh, so I get out of the car, start unbuckling my son, diaper bag in hand, and they drive past me. And I kind of go like, you know, what do you want? And uh, they drove again, pulled in the driveway, came back. As I made my way around the front of the car, we were, this is my car and the police, and they were facing me and they rolled down the window and basically said, can I see your ID? And here I have, you know, 20, 30 pound baby in my arm and a diaper bag. And I kind of showed them like, you know, I'm bringing my son and uh, I can't really, you know, show you, show you my ID. And uh, he said that twice, repeated it twice. I went into the daycare and um, I was inside there and the lady, the daycare lady said, what, you know, what's going on? And I said, oh, you remember that story I told you about? I said, well, I think this probably has to do with it again. And uh, she's like, oh my goodness. And so we got Jack's, you know, undressed and, uh, you know, ready to play. And I went back outside and they had actually made a turn and went behind my vehicle. And uh, the officer was kind of standing on the lawn meeting me and asking me for my ID. And I had told my wife to call her lawyer. So he was on the line so he could hear what was, you know, transpiring. And I said, why are you stopping me? I said, you've been following me for like two kilometers about. And he said, oh, no, we're just doing a random stop. I said, if it was so random, why didn't you do it? you know, that far, far away, like two, two kilometers back. Oh, we do that, uh, you know, all the time and, and stuff like that. So um, my wallet is on my side here. It's a, uh, okay, it's basically like that. So you can see this is my driver's license here. So I basically went like this to him and he said, no, take it out. So I took it out. My wife got the insurance out. Now there was kids, all the kids in the daycare, including my son, the, the, it was a husband-wife team. So the husband was taking him to the park and the wife came out kind of saying to the police, like, what's going on here? And all the kids were on the front stoop seeing this transpire. Um, came back, ran the plates, gave me an ID, basically said, you know, what's going on? Uh, Nothing. Have a good day. So I know I said some obscenities. Um, or, or, yeah, use profanity and uh, got back into my car and drove home. We were going to head to the uh, to the office of the logistics company, but decided to drive home. I called uh, Krar right away, so Faux, and uh, he explained to me, he's like, write everything down, uh, take a, take, get a, you know, map, map out on Google Maps the distance from where you were to your the, the, the daycare. And uh, it was actually 1.4 kilometers and took... I think it was like three minutes by car or something like it was a far they had a like they could have pulled me over a lot earlier if it was so random right uh anyway so that we you know did the police ethics uh, uh complaint we did the quebec human rights complaint and in uh 2019 or 18 uh the quebec human rights got involved in the file and said no there, this was a clear case of discrimination and racial profiling against Joe Belfi. We're going to intervene 
and we're going to represent him. Um, and then they sent a letter to the city basically stating that um, this is what they found and this is what they suggest to rectify the situation. Now, the Quebec Human Rights Commission does not uh, oversee, does not have any legal uh, leg to stand on and enforce judgments. It's the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal. Mm -hmm. and a lot of people make that error, um, you know, that mistake. So the tribunal is the judge and the commission is the organization that helps people file their complaints. And um, so that was that. And uh, they basically sent the, the letter to the city stating that, you know, we want or he wants 12,000 for damages. Um, you guys need to rework the way you train your officers. And we want you to collect uh, race related data on all of your interceptions that involves visible minorities on the South Shore. Okay. So they wrote back a letter. We gave them 30 days. They wrote back a letter and basically said, no, we don't feel that uh, we did anything wrong here and we're not doing anything of what you're recommending. Totally. As you got basically profiled twice in a year in the same part of town. One yeah. Of them, one of them well, stopped. it wasn't twice. It was about, about a year and a half, year and a half apart. Yeah. Still pretty, pretty Still. close. Yeah. And then... And one of them gets resolved relatively quick because they gave you a yes, ticket. The first so one, yeah. because it had a ticket, it went into the system right quick. The other yeah. one, there's no ticket. It was a have a nice day. You lodged a complaint and it takes eight years. It took eight years. Holy smackaroni. Yeah. Cause it, it, yeah, it went back and forth. There's a lot of just bureaucracy that just gets shot around everywhere you know, pushing papers. And I get it. You don't want to make mistakes. And like I said before, which could possibly damage a, a person or their career, mentally, social, whatever. And, and I get it. But eight years, I, I find it's a little uh, extreme. So basically, the city declined. And in the 30-day notice letter, we said to them, we said, you know, you've got the 30 days, so we're going we're gonna to sue you. We're going to take you to court. And uh, they replied, no, we're not, and you're welcome to sue us. So the Quebec Human Rights Commission and myself sued uh, the city of Longueuil and the two officers that were involved. And uh, the case was heard in 2020, I think it was beginning of 2020. And the judgment was uh, November 2021. And basically, 68-page decision, three judges were on that, and it was littered with the word racial profiling, and which, again, I'm repeating that because you, you, if you find any cases that involve, uh, you know, visible minority, that term is rarely used, okay? Rarely, rarely, rarely used. I had it out in 68 pages. I think it was at least five times on each page. And the judge ruled in my favor. So they had to award me uh, 12,000. They had to collect race-related data starting in 2021 uh, and provide those results to uh, citizens every six months. 
They had to rework the way they train their police um, and update their racial profiling uh, sort of uh, program uh, over there. Um, so that's a huge decision. No decision is like that in all of Canada, let alone Quebec. It's the first decision in the history of the Quebec Human Rights Commission, as well as the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal. There has never been a decision where a court has actually mandated and ordered a police force to collect race-related data. So it it's, has huge, um, what's the word, huge repercussions where this, <clears throat> this judgment can be used in all sorts uh, you know, of, of decisions, uh, sectors and industries. Um, you know, there was discussion that it could also uh, assist with or be used for COVID-19 related cases because I think it was over a year or so or eight or nine months ago, there was a lot of talk of, you know, blacks and, you know, darker skinned people were more affected or, or still are more affected by COVID. And if we collect data on, you know, these people uh, or these cases, we'll be able to, you know, kind of figure out and how to get to the bottom of things and stuff, which collecting data from people would get the, the clearer picture of what, uh, you know, could, could transpire, what's going on and how to, you know, tackle it and, and, and help people out. So it's a massive decision, um, which could be used by any police force uh, across uh, Canada or mandated, you know, in any, in any future decisions. So it's case law and jurisprudence that um, could be used on, against any force or any uh, public safety organization in Canada. Yeah, that's really big. Yeah, yeah. So and it's, you're saying uh, it only got resolved last year. It only got resolved last year. Yeah. That's like wild. How long it can take to like deal with something like that? Like it, nine years or so. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 really sad that you know something like that, um, you know, would take that long. Um, but again, it's it's the the important part of that decision for me was the you know the race related data, the change that it actually made and is making and will make in the future um, for everybody, not just visible minorities, you know, for for anyone and that this whole you know situation that happened to me is is part of policy that i'd like to see you know happen if i if i get voted in however it's not uh it's not up there it's not it's not one of the top right um but what but but what it did for me it allowed me to gain that confidence where I could use this, you know, platform that was, you know, so ironically given to me, you know, 12 years ago, where back to what we said before about something wrong, you know, becoming possibly a right. So for me, um, this opened my eyes, at, you know, for the last 12 years, you know, the first, you know, few months, first year was, you know, I was more focused, okay, you know, what is it going to do to me? What is it going to do to my family? You know, what is it going to do to my son? Uh, he's going to be driving. He's going to do this. Guarantees going to be stopped. 
Um, but then, you know, the, the, the more that it was exposed, because it was, I mean, if you, you Google my name, it, there's pages and pages on me about this, and, you know, my companies and stuff like that. So it's really been in the media for years. And, and so I was like, I'm going to use this platform for good to, um, you know, help others and, and, and just, you know, try and do right. I mean, we're all in this thing we call life and we all have the same fate at the end of the day, right? So why not use the good or use the values or anything that is given to you for the better and do the best that you can? So that to me was an opportunity where I felt, you know what, I'm gonna go with this. I'm gonna run with this. I'm gonna, you know, I know I wasn't wrong because everybody that drives a car knows if their license is lapsed or their insurance is lapsed or the registration is lapsed. They know what they're doing wrong. Everybody that's driving in their car and there's a police that beside you do not do anything wrong. They're always 10 and two. Their hearts are always racing. They're always freaking out. Did I do anything wrong? So if they are pulled over and they know they did nothing wrong, why would you not say something about it? Right? So for me, I'm a very, and there's no pun here, black or white person. So meaning for me, okay, I'm very black or white. There's, there's, right. there's no need for gray. There's no room for interpretation because you know when you're doing something wrong and the other person, because it takes two to tango, also knows. So there's no, it's what he or she has and it's what myself and I has as opposed to what's in the middle, right? So there's no room in my mind you can discuss things, you can talk, you can relate and go back and forth, but then there's also the truth. So you know when you're doing something wrong in a car. So say something about it, speak up about it, right? So for me, it's very important um, to continue, you know, my life like that and to speak up for things and do things. If I see things that, you know, I myself or my family or anybody that I care about or love, and let alone, you know, strangers on the street, um, have them feel better by a gesture that I'm taking the lead on or doing, then I'll do that over 10 times over and I'll continue to do that because that's the type of person that I am. I had my back against the wall, you know, one, I hit rock bottom, two, I was involved in two highly publicized human rights cases that woke me up as a person that, you know, there's a lot of good and there's also a lot of bad that's happening or that has happened, you know, to people. And, you know, do not be afraid to speak up about it because, again, at the end of the day, you are the, you are the same. We're all in that same boat. We all, you know, you know, go home to sleep. We eat, you know, we wake up, we, you know, we speak, we do all this. So, and we bleed the same color. So we just need to normalize, you know, simple things down where um, we can just all get along. And that, like, again, all of that that happened to me has guided me to where I am, you know, today. Uh, fortunately enough, uh, last year, um, you know, party leader, Mr. Holness, uh, you know, asked me if I wanted to, to join and I was, I thought about it for a few weeks and, uh, 
you know, well, here we are, of course. Um, but it just, it just jived, right? It was just, it was something that ever since I, I, you know, set myself on that forward sort of path where I wanted to have good things and, you know, rub shoulders with, you know, good people, people that, you know, um, knew what they wanted and stuff like that, things started turning around. And that's, that's the cycle, um, you know, that happened to me. So, you know, fortunate enough, I said yes. Um, and, you know, and here we are today. And that's basically the path that I would continue, um, you know, as city councilor of, of Loyola. Um, you know, I've been here for a year and a half. I've seen a lot of things that are happening, you know, in our district where you've seen obviously some, some media about it. You've seen some of my posts on my official Facebook page about it. Um, where I've seen those, but there's no guarantee that everyone's seen those. Well, it, no, but then you can go to joeldebelfight.com uh, or go to joeldebelfight on Facebook and you'll be able to see, uh, you know, some of my posts. Um, you can pick up the Suburban and see some things as well. And uh, so basically you saw some of the things, you know, I live on, on Walkley. Uh, I wanted to, when I moved from the South Shore over here with my family, I wanted to immerse myself in a community, in an area of the community where I felt that I could bring some good, um, make some changes where, you know, people that for whatever reasons are less fortunate than others, I wanted to be able to bring the, the life experiences. That, that's what I like to call it. It's life experiences that I have, that I went through, that are actually changing laws. I've changed laws, you know. Um, I'm in, you can go to Canley, and and pull up multiple case laws uh and cases where where my situations have uh helped people win their cases lose their cases uh and so on but because it's case law it's there so i said i'm gonna take this i'm gonna immerse myself in a community where i can uh try and create change for the better for the people and 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 do it you know methodically effectively using the tools that are at uh, the hands of the citizens um, which um, some of them aren't familiar uh, i know when we had a conversation at the park the other day i made reference to the montreal charter of rights uh, and responsibilities which if nobody uh, who's listening aren't familiar with it it's a charter of rights uh, between uh, the city as well as the citizens of all the 19 boroughs of Montreal. It's a social contract that allows uh, citizens to basically invoke to the city if any of those articles are breached. There's about, I think there's 42 or 45 articles that touches on every single topic. Again, I'll go back to where, wherever you look, wherever you see. So, I mean, if you look at the streets, if you look at the sidewalks, if you look at buildings, if you look at trees and landscapes, uh, infrastructure, the whole nine yards, it touches on all of that information in the articles. So, as a citizen, I invoked that my rights, which also includes my surroundings as a whole, are being breached. And I'll make reference to the, you know, unsightly building on Walkley where I've had people come up to me, you know, just in, in conversation telling me that, you know, it's been 12, 13, 14, 15 years that this building, you know, has had the graffiti, the boards up, five foot long grass. Like, it's just, 
you know, and going back to whoever you keep, that is what you will either be or become or be similar to. So the citizens or residents of this area are walking up and down Walkley Street every day of their lives for however old they are and however long they've lived here. And they're seeing the utter filth, the other disarray and dismay of that building. And that those children that are also walking there, they're going to be affected by what they see. They're sponges. They're absolute sponges. They take in absolutely everything that they see, that they hear. So they're seeing the state of this area on Walkley and the surrounding streets that they're going to remember when they're 20, 15, 30, 40, 50, 60, until they die, they're going to remember what they grew up in and what kind of mental or social impact do you believe or think that that will have on them in their, you know, in the, in beyond the, in the beyond years, a tremendous amount. And even myself, I was being affected by it. I was, you know, getting upset that, you know, I got to go outside. I got to see garbage. I got to see this building with long grass. I've got to, when I'm walking my dog, I've got to dodge skunks because they're hiding in between five foot long, you know, bushes. I mean, that's not cool. That's not the way people should live. That's certainly not the way people that are living one street over or two street over and so on, you know, or I'm over you know, like I'm at Rosedale and Fielding trust. Nobody on Rosedale is living like that. Well, exactly. So, so, so I used some articles in the charter to basically say, you know what, CDNNDG, you have breached multiple articles, not only for me, but for the residents in this district. And uh, you're going to do something about it. Um, again, in a, in a, you know, professional manner where, you know, I stated out information as to what articles I was referencing. And um, within 30 minutes of uh, sending out an email, uh, I received a phone call from somebody from the city uh, explaining to me that they had just received an email and uh, that they were going to look into it and that it's the OMHM's responsibility to, um, you know, do something with the building. What's, what's an OMHM? The L'Office uh, Marial, it's, a, it's the uh, residential um, affordable housing uh, managerial group, um, like the SDHM, they basically affordable housing for, um, for, for residents. Um, so they own that building that is a disgrace. So he told me, so it's the affordable housing people own the really bad building and nobody just did anything with it. You said it. So they were basically waiting on funding. The gist of the story, they're waiting on funding from the government in order to, you know, probably allocate those funds to certain projects and the building, um, you know, in question was the, uh, you know, one of the buildings that was waiting uh, on that funding. Uh, so basically he told me that either at the time, so two, three weeks ago, that he was either going to hear that day or within a couple of days from the director of housing, um, Dan uh, Pepper, 
uh, in regards to what was going to transpire. Uh, sure enough, I was on the South Shore. I had to do some banking. I came back home and there was, again, I live right beside, there was an inspector from the city that was kind of poking around in the, in the bushes. And I said, you know, can I help you? And he said, uh, yes, and, you know, he showed me his, uh, his shirt. He said, I'm with the city, I'm an inspector and just uh, seeing what's going on here. I see some illegal dumping. I see, you know, this, uh, you know, basically everything that was going on. Um, I, you know, thanked him, introduced myself and, and, you know, mentioned to him that this state of the building is absolutely disgusting. I said, it looks like, you know, we're living in uh, Detroit, you know, I've never been there. I'm just referencing, you know, movies that I've seen. Uh, you know, one of the one of the movies that that reminds me of that was Four Brothers with uh, with uh, Mark Wahlberg, right. and uh, and he laughed and he he said, you know what? He goes pretty darn close, okay. And uh, so the next day, I woke up to take my uh, dog for a walk. And there were three men that had opened, because there's fencing around, that had opened uh, the fence. And they were, you know, putting on their, you know, coveralls, uh, hard hats and flashlights and crowbars. And again, I introduced myself. And I said, you know, what's, what's, what's happening here? And they're like, oh, well, we received, uh, you know, a file, an urgent file. It was marked urgent uh, that we um, come here and do an inspection and see what's going on. And I said, well, you know, residents have been saying that the state of this building has been here, you know, 10 plus, 12, 30, 40, 15 years, it's looked like this, uh, you know, and it's important uh, that this gets fixed because this is absolute, this is appalling, you know, one year, not even one year, three weeks, you know, long grass is there, it should be done. Um, you know, the state of the building should have been taken care of years ago. Um, basically, they said, Mr. DeBelfe, I promise you that Monday or Tuesday of the following week, that at least the grass will be done. Because I said to them, these people across the street and these people that have to walk up and down the street have to see this all the time. I live right here. I see this all the time. The simple aesthetics of cutting the grass and pulling out the weeds that are five feet long will make a huge difference, okay? I need to have that done, please. He said, Monday or Tuesday, I'm gonna hold you to that. I had his emails and stuff like that. And he said, I can't promise which day, but they promised one of those days. So Monday came and went, nothing. <laughs> Tuesday morning, again, walking my dog, coming back. There's six guys with a pickup truck, with a, you know, a ramp extension. There were buzz saws, clippers, you know, the driving lawnmower fence was open there and there raking cut. That all got done. And the same people, the director of housing was there. And I, I went up to him and I said, Dan, look, thank you so much. You, you stuck to your word. And this is, this is a beautiful thing. And if you go to my Facebook page, you'll see, you know, the pictures of, you know, the before and the after. Uh, you'll see a video of me basically making reference to what's happening in the background. And uh, then I said, great, 
now what are you going to do about this building? Because it looks like crap. And, you know, I want to, I need to know what's going on because this is, this is absolutely, this is unacceptable. And he said, Joel, he said, uh, look, he goes, the, the question about this building has been, you know, up for, for many, uh, you know, many months, many years. And, but we, after we did our inspection, we feel that it's probably, but we don't know yet, it will probably be demolished and then rebuilt into affordable housing again. So basically identical to what you see or what's there now, and but obviously br brand new. Um, so I said, I, I need timing because this is, this should not be, this should not take this long. And he said, he said, look, he goes, probably uh, we're gonna start demolishing in the springtime. I go, 2022? Said yes. I said, okay, at least now we're moving somewhere, right? At least the grass is done, the aesthetics. I saw people walking up and down the street, actually stopping and looking, taking pictures because it's, it's <laughs> day and night. And I would go out and I spoke to them and I said, well, you know, you know, see what's happening here? I made that happen. I sent a letter to the city to make this happen because this is crazy. What? All you did was send a letter? And I said, well, it wasn't just a letter. It's, and then I made reference to the charter. Oh, well, we've called 311 on this building so many times. We were on hold for an hour. They, nobody answered. We sent letters, we emails, we called. Nobody has done anything. They don't send somebody to come and pick up the garbage. Nothing. They do nothing. And I said, well, you know, and I kind of I laughed, but laughed kind of, you know, uncomfortably that why should I, you know, be the one to make change where you have the citizens that are actually, you know, that have been here, you know, freaking forever that can't get anything done. So that made me think a lot more that, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's just not right. Um, Fast forward about another six days, Olin. I wake up to backing up of a truck. Beep, beep, beep. So again, I go outside, start walking the dog. There's another crew outside from a company called Canmax uh, Construction. Art has the full nine yards. There was a boom lift that was beside the building. And what they were doing were they, they were taking down the bricks because the bricks had kind of buckled. So it was kind of like a, you know, an arch and it was dangerous and it was somewhere falling. And they, I said, I introduced myself again and they said, well, we received another urgent file that we had to come here. We don't know what it is, but we would have came earlier, but we couldn't rent a boom truck because boom trucks were not available right now. But we were told we had to do this and drop everything that we were doing and be here. That was from one of the supervisors. So what they were doing was they were removing all the bricks and they were putting up a plastic sort of tarp to kind of reinforce the side and the structure of the, um, of the building. And it took them seven days to actually do it. And again, there's those photos and I believe a video or so. Uh, on my Facebook page that shows the before and after, which again is absolutely remarkable from what it was before. And all of that was done through the issuance of the Montreal Charter 
of rights and invoking some of the articles that have been breached. So I have like one question. In theory, yeah. though, if everybody invokes the charter at the same time, do we go back to the same position? It, it, it will be a, it would be a, it would be a mess. It would be chaotic. Um, the body that handles complaints is a Montreal Bensman. And so if you, if the city does not, and again, this counts for all boroughs. If the city does not react or act, so either respond to your email or actually get something done to your query and you're not satisfied with what is done, your resort is a Montreal Ombudsman. If you invoke the articles, if you don't invoke the articles, you can still go to the Ombudsman, but it essentially stops there. And they try and do a, you know, conciliation or whatever, trying to try and figure it out. Um, it's a very important document. I can send you the link after, um, but if it Actually, all I think I found it on your site after we talked. Yeah, on joelndg.com, I have it up there. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's a very, very, if you Google it, there's, I think, minimal results that come up on Google. About I am pretty sure your page comes up, and that's how I ended up finding your site. Because we talked, I went home, I Googled oh, it, yeah? and there wasn't a lot, but you're, you have a a good SEO page for it, like yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I I built that that site. I built all my sites myself. But um, it's a very important document that anybody that's listening or will listen, they should really take a look at it. It's not complicated. Um, it, it's you know it's simple language that is easy to understand. And to answer your question, if everybody invokes a charter all at the same time. It would not be a good situation um, at all. Um, it, it, uh, it would probably be pretty, pretty chaotic. Um, but um, I don't. I'm not stressing for everybody right. to do that. But if you feel that you're getting nowhere and your your wheels are spinning in Greece and you have no other alternative you have that right just like you have the right for the quebec human rights charter as well as the canadian you know charts of rights and freedom you have that the montreal charter of rights and responsibilities is the only document in the entire world the only city in the entire world that has a document like this where the city actually has a charter of rights multiple companies uh not companies sorry cities are trying to uh adopt similar articles and and trying to create a charter similar as the Montreal's charter. It was founded in 2006 and it's available for all the boroughs and for anybody to use. And on the site, it actually states, sorry, on the PDF file, 28 page PDF file, it says that it's a social contract between the city and its citizens. Okay. So it's just, it's wild to me because like, I mean, I know I, I had this reaction like when we first talked, but you go your whole life, right? Yeah. Or at least since those six is basically my whole adult life is that yeah. period of time. Not once did I hear about it until I met you at the, in Burgundy. <clears throat> yeah. It's and, and believe it or not, I only heard about it 
when I went digging, I was speaking with the other candidates and I was like, I said, you know what, this is appalling the street. I said, there's gotta be, there's gotta be something out there, you know, like what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If the city can, you know, be at your doorstep after three weeks or a month and find you because your grass is long, long, why can't the citizens say, well, you know, that property you own or that you manage or that, you know, your tenant, so the OMHM owns, why can't we force them to do the same? It, it's mm -hmm. just, you know, so because I have the, you know, the background of what has happened to me, uh, you know, for the last 12 years, I am very hands-on. I read, I research, and, you know, I look at certain things that, uh, you know, I wouldn't use the word loophole. It's not a loophole. It's an actual documentation that was created by the city of Montreal to basically, you know, be an open book that, look, we are transparent. We will help you when you need help, but you as a citizen and resident of Montreal and the boroughs, you know, you are also obliged and, and to do this. So that's why I use the analogy of what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? right. So if your grass is long and they come to you, well, if their grass is long, then you can go to them, that's, you know? That's wild. I, so it's, I it's, searched and I searched and it took me, you know, uh, three, four hours and I came across this document and, you know, I asked multiple people and they hadn't heard about it. And, and I'm like, this is crazy. This is a, this is a, I wouldn't say a gold mine, but a, a, a very valuable document where, um, you know, citizens of Montreal and obviously CDNNG, Loyola district should read up on, look at it, um, you know, in a final, you know, last resort, um, you know, you can always have that to kind of, you know, Other fall back curiosity. On. Is there articles in there? Because I haven't read it related to cracks in the street. Yeah. Fascinating. There's articles. It, it, they don't use cracks in the street. They were, they they use reference of uh, roads, infrastructure, and sidewalks, etc. So that, that, yes. So what is also different is that if you just send a regular letter, an email, or etc., that will go into a pile on their desk where they're not obliged to answer you in the amount of time that you know they'll answer you whenever they want to answer you they'll, they'll get around to it but in when you invoke the articles it's a legal document it's a it's a uh, well it depends on how it's drafted i drafted it uh like a formal letter of notice like a demand letter so i put in specific uh things that i wanted to see and have happen in a certain period of time so that time for me was 10 days, 10 calendar days. I wanted to see results or a response of what will or could happen in the 10 days. And if I was not happy or am not happy with any of that information, then my last resort is a Montreal Ombudsman. Okay. So those 10 days or whatever, it could be seven, it could be three, it could be 10, it could be 30. Whoever is invoking and drafting the letter, it's up to them to decide. So if they don't answer, well, or don't rectify whatever you're, you're having an issue with, well, then it, it just goes, it goes to the ombudsman. So they reacted within 30 minutes, which was absolutely impressive. And, you know, kudos, 
you know, to the city, to the workers, to the mayor, uh, to reacting to getting, you know, this done. It's not a, you know, again, we're all in this thing called life. We're all, you know, trying to, you know, advance ourselves, advance ourselves for our family, our friends, our loved ones. Um, we just want to live and be happy and, you know, be in, you know, comfortable surroundings. And so invoking the letter was not a, a you know, I guess a, a, you know, harsh move. It was a move that allowed me to actually invoke my rights for myself and fellow citizens to get this eyesore of a building up a notch where people can actually see that something is, is being done about it. Uh, again, going back to what I said, you know, walking on the street, uh, you know, people are stopping me, you know, that, that I had spoke to before. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. This is, this is wonderful. People are stopping, taking pictures, you know, they're turning their heads when they're driving by because it's that, it's that much of a difference. Right. And, and so for me, it was important, uh, you know, that that get done and get done in the, a lot of time that was given to the city. Uh, another example of the invocation of the article uh, of articles and the charter was Confederation Park. Uh, I think since uh, you know I, I announced my candidacy, uh, people are seeing uh, you know what I'm about, what I've done, uh, you know my human rights advocacy. Uh, well, I, mean, I just have to say, as far as candidates go, yes, I don't know that I've heard of a candidate that accomplished things not being in office quite in the way that you did. So that's definitely remarkable. Well, I appreciate that very much, and that, that I, means a lot. I definitively uh, can't say it hasn't happened before. Yeah, at no. least in my knowledge in of your... what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back to back to Confederation uh, uh, Park. I uh, received a Facebook message from uh, a guy by the name of Mike, and he uh, is the the founder of the Facebook group, the uh, NDG Roadrunners, and he had saw. Uh, or heard of, you know, what I had, uh, you know, helped to accomplish, uh, you know, here on Walkley. And he said, look, uh, you know, I was speaking with, uh, you know, our 25, 30 plus runners here, and they're absolutely, you know, appalled with the way uh, this uh, Confederation part of the racetrack looks like it's, it's absolutely, you know, disgusting. Again, five foot weeds, uh, you know, and bushes around the, the, the fence off area. Uh, you know, the, the bike crack, like we can't see anything, you know, I want to invite you down here and, and speak with them. And I don't know if you can do something, you can try. So, you know, I went there a few days later and um, looked and again, there's Facebook uh, pictures, uh, you know, on my official page, which uh, depicts the situation uh, and, and what it, you know, looked like. And it was appalling. So I spoke with the group of 25, 30 plus people. And I said, look, I'm going to try and uh, repeat um, what I did with the appearance of, uh, you know, the building on Walkley. See if I can do it here. I said, I'm not promising anything, but I'll, I, I'll go back and look at the charter and I'll see if there's any articles in there that actually, you know, communicates to and references what is actually transpiring to this, to this park and, and the look of it. So I gave it some thought. I, I left the park. I went back home. Um, you know, started googling and, and and researching again on you know different things. I looked at the uh, the charter and I found, I believe it was four articles 
uh, where they specifically reference in the articles uh, sports and recreation and parks. Um, and they use the word high quality parks. That is not a high quality park. So I put pen to paper, drafted up the uh, almost the exact same uh, formal letter that I did for Walkley and did the exact same thing. And I didn't hear anything. And on the 10th day, I actually wrote down, I think I have it here. I wrote down in my, in my book, I was counting days. And you know, when you have, if something happens today, do you count today or do you don't count today? Do you start tomorrow? So I was a little, I was never very good at that. So I had to, I wrote it physically down and I've got to show you this because it was so, um, I wrote it down, the dates down and I started counting and I'm like, okay, does this fall on the ninth day or does this fall on the 10th day? And sure enough, it was uh, the 10th day. And I got the, I can't find it. I got a, a text ironically at 9.30 in the morning from Mike saying, they're here, the city's here. I said, what? I said, you gotta be kidding me. And uh, so I text him back and then, you know, he didn't answer me, he ended up calling me and saying, you know, yeah, I, I, I can't believe it. I came here and uh, I see them, you know, doing uh, the, the start, you know, I said, look, I've got to go do an oil change at 10 o'clock. It was 9.55. I was doing it at Gordon's. And I was like, I'm going to go there before I go to Gordon's and I'll be there, uh, you know, in two minutes. So I buzzed up there. I was there in, in uh, like a minute flat, two minutes flat. And sure enough, um, I saw the, you know, big city truck and a dump truck with the arm and they were, they had literally started cutting um, the, uh, the track. And, um, two days later, um, Mike sent me an email that he received from the city. I said, Mike, have you ever received a letter from the city before? He said, no, he goes, never. He goes, I've called them. I spoke to them to try and get them. To, it hasn't been done in over a year. So let's get this straight here. They come in, they cut the grass where people play soccer or rugby. They cut all around the trees, but they don't do the simple job of aesthetics by taking a whippersnipper or clippers to cut the hedges. You know, and I use this analogy before when talking with somebody, I said, it's like going to a car wash, paying for an entire car wash, or your whole car getting washed, but they only wash your windows. Right. Okay. It just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's like, why, why bother? You know, for me, if I was in charge of public works, I would either fire the company that was hired to do the job. Okay. Because they're not doing the job right. If they're, if they're being paid, you know, X amount of dollars that they've been allocated to receive for the entire year contract or whatever it is, six months, whenever they start cutting the grass and they're excluding doing the simple aesthetics but you're still taking the money that we're giving you and you're not doing the job, you're, you're getting fired. Or- So are you able to do that? I've heard talking to some of the more, I'm already elected folk, that that's a little more complicated than it might it, be. It is, it, 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 it is, but from a dummying down right. sort of conversation, and, and again, right? 
I'm going to use his words twice. I'm going to use bureaucracy. We need to we need to bring it down a little bit. And and there's sometimes in some circumstances that bureaucracy needs to take a shelf and common sense. Like if we're paying you to cut the grass, that means the weeds and everything else that goes with it. Okay. Otherwise, I'm not going to pay you. Or I'm going to find somebody that does it because there's the reason why I say that there's no reason why other parks in this district have the weeds and bushes uh, cut and the grass cut. But why not Confederation? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's wild because it, it's right next to the high school. Well, you know what? It's, 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 I, I, I agree with you, but at the same time, not not to disrespect you, but so what to you know to the city right it's like yeah why are you why are you making this pretty and that ugly or keeping that ugly right. and making this pretty you know and 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 that's where i go back to where i was saying black and white there's there's no this is this is just common sense is that if you're going to if you're hiring a team of people to take care of the grass and you're picking and choosing how you want the appearance of one part to look than the other, there's not many reasons why you would need to do that. There's cutting back on funds, or you just don't give a crap about that area where that park is located. There's not many other... Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's a... It's a strong, bold sort of statement, but... Oh, I'm I am very okay making those kinds of strong bull <laughs> statements. I personally think gentrification don't give a crap about who used to live here, but that's no, but, but, but what, like what even I'm... in that area, like the area you're talking about is not renowned for being the most whitest middle classes, nicest area. It's kind of on the other end of it. Right. But again, how come with my letter invoking four articles of the charter, how did that get done? That was not that was not a coincidence. That was done because they received that letter. So right. why? Who am I? I'm a private citizen invoking my rights as a citizen of NDG that the city breached multiple articles in regards to that part. So I get what you're saying that oh well they did you know the 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 park. Absolutely. I, I don't agree with anything the city does with regards to picking and choosing. Like I'm like straight up there. I'm just saying in my experience, they yeah. tend to pick and choose. Like, you well, can, right. Yeah. Well, if elected, I will try to, obviously I'm, I'll have to, you know, learn the, the bureaucracy and what, uh, what it actually entails, you know, deeply, you know, in the roots uh, you know, of the, of the council, but I, I will, you know, make myself uh, heard in regards to like, you know, we need to, there's, is there certain things again, going back to the analogy of the, the car wash and the windows, that just doesn't make sense. You're not going to pay for something. And then, you know, I understand there's probably certain budgets that need to be, you know, cut, uh, brought down, but you know, your people, your citizens of the district, they, 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 you know, need some lifters, right? They need some morale lifters. So I went back there to the park and, you know, 
and, and Mike was ecstatic. Um, it looks so much better. It's brighter. Uh, they still need to, you know, get the lights fixed because yeah, the that, light that, that solar. Yeah. It, the lights are not fun. I, I used to I used to run there and like the the lights in that area are wildly scary at night. Well yeah, and, and I mean we're we're I mean right now, well, we're eight o'clock and it's it's pitch black outside, but you know, Mike was telling me he's like, you know, Joel at like five, six o'clock here in November or whatever, October, like it's pitch black here. So that brings up another articles is safety and security. So the city, through the charter, says that we will you know, protect our citizens. We are going to make sure that they're okay. Well, you're not by leaving this park with the lights non-functioning because it's dark. If they work solely by solar, they're not going to go on at night, right? Only for a temporary amount of time. So why not fix those simple things where the people that are utilizing the park, which are, you know, some of the students, there's, there's, there's you, there's, you know, a lot of people that are using those parks. So why not uplift the spirits? People don't, aren't asking for, you know, university type, you know, tracks and stuff. They're just like, look, just cut the grass, like, or, or you know, fix the lights. These aren't big things. These, these aren't big things. The same thing with cutting the grass here. You know, in 15 years, you don't cut the grass. Why? It's just, these are small, you know, pay a kid $20, cut the grass, right? So, I'm getting a little worked that. up there, Holden. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I mean, no, it's, it's because I'm, like, I'm, I'm passionate. The person about, who like lives you know, here, it's super interesting to see like the passion, and dedication you have to like making the change happen. I mean, yeah. I imagine once you're in power, it's a lot more complicated. And um, and I completely, I completely agree with you on that. Um, and I was actually told that, and I completely agree with you. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I get it, I do get it, but at the same time, there's, you know, there's also, you know, morality and, and dignity that's also involved in it as well. We're not robots. We're not, you know, program, you know, we're people. Yes, we make mistakes, but at the same time, we also have, you know, emotions, sentiments, uh, and feelings that, uh, you know, together can possibly give us better judgments and things. Not everything has to be a suit uh, and, and completely uh, square. You know, they can be, you know, just like people, we're multiple colors or multiple different personalities. Um, so it just doesn't need to always be like that. And for me, it's extremely important. I'm passionate that this city, this district, it has so much potential um, that, you know, it's basically an old dusty book that needs to be dusted and, and, and cleaned and restored. The book doesn't need to be rewritten. It just needs to be dusted off. And, and right. that's what I would hopefully like to, not hopefully, what I would accomplish, you know, if I'm hopefully, uh, you know, voted in uh, into office. Um, so outside of like the parks and stuff, are there any other, I guess, things that you feel are like important issues for the Lala district? Absolutely. Um, there's uh, going back to uh, human rights. Um, I want to see the uh, children. I want to see um, school programs uh, or, you know, like in the uh, community centers for Walkley. And hopefully, I think, you know, something's being voted in tonight, hopefully for the Rosa, that, that's great. Um, where, you know, there's after school uh, schooling or programs 
where, because it, it starts with the kids, right? The kids need to know, um, you know, cause they're, like, they're sponges. They watch television. They, they, you know, they have the, you know, phones in their hands and their tablets. So they're very uh, apparent to uh, what is going on with them, but they're not, you know, sat down and explained, you know, people are different. Um, you know, that's the reason why Joey and Emma look this way and you look this way, right? And so I want to I want to uh, focus on, uh, you know, one of the policies in creating these programs where the children are educated. It's not just about sports. Of course, you know, sports is, is a key thing, but integrate, um, you know, learning programs that teaches these kids that, um, you know, people are different started at a young age and then when they're in their teens they're going to have more of a welcoming uh demeanor uh, you know amongst their peers in the schools um another thing is uh a skate park i was reached out to uh the members of the uh facebook group that are looking to create uh you know state-of-the-art skate park uh, at benny park i'm all for that why because you can do scooters uh, you can do BMXing, uh, which I used to do years ago. Uh, you know, you got rollerblading, roller skating, and of course, skateboarding. So it's hitting multiple burrs with one stone. Uh, you know, what's there now? Yeah, it's nice there. Sure, you can do what you need to do. But again, it's all about just uplifting the community and bringing them together where that everybody's living in harmony. I know it's a, a utopia that I'm, I'm saying, but the simple things, you know, it's like an anthill can become a mountain. So you do a little bit for your community, they will in turn, you know, love you back and not knowing that the small things actually amount to big things. People don't want to see a massive change here. They just want to see the simple things that will encourage them to be, you know, uplift, you know, a little bounce in their step and, you know, go out, spend, I mean, obviously I say spend money, but we're in a pandemic, but like prior to that, you know, go out to the restaurants. Um, you know, I'm a huge advocate for small businesses. Uh, you know, as you see what's, you know, been in the media as well, uh, there's the dog scouts uh, and they're unfortunate, uh, you know, happening that they have with the city in regards to their location there, um, you know, uh, I have a background, obviously, uh, you know, in, in two, two corporate companies, two, uh, one of them is going public, another is public. Um, you know, I have a consulting company. Uh, I do um, multiple things myself uh, to project uh, my company. So I have that experience. I want to create basically a package, uh, 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 a bubble, a hub of, uh, you know, basic things. So, uh, you know, products, printing, uh, you know, communication, funding. Uh, I want to create that hub for small businesses so that they can thrive because without those small businesses, um, you know, they're what not going to by that hub. How do you, how do you picture that hub being a, an incubator? So basically an incubator is basically all in multiple sectors or industries, whatever the businesses are around here. So for example, if you're a print shop, uh, you know, you'll give uh, the members of the incubator a certain discount so that the money stays within that incubator and everybody 
uh, all the businesses benefit from what's going on. So if you're a printing shop and I'm a business that want uh, documentation, uh, you know, printed out, uh, thought I had something here, but basically if I want information printed out like this, uh, for example, right? So instead right. of going to Bureau on Grow and paying a, an arm and a leg, why don't you support your fellow small business that's in your community uh, that's going to give you a 10 or 15 or 20% discount, whatever it may be, and then vice versa. And then that extra 15, 20 or 25% that that small business keeps, they can use that money to reinvest into growing their business, which you know will help them to grow and to expand, right? If you're... Uh, you know, uh, a financing company, not if you're a bank, if you're a private investor, uh, it's difficult to get funding if you go straight to the bank, right? Uh, or if you you, you do these, uh, you know, uh, programs with the government, it, it takes months, it's long, it's confusing. You might have private investors in that incubator that are like, look, for, uh, you know, 5% or 2% of your company, uh, or I'll help you out, or look, it's a loan, just give me a, you know, 5%, uh, you know, return on, on the ROI and, and go right? Uh, those are things that will help the small businesses thrive, uh, you know, in this community. And that's what we need. We need, like I said, we need a bounce in our step. Uh, I want to uh, do a project on Summerlet. Summerlet streets are like 60 feet across. And there's no, there's no yellow markers, there's no white lines on the road for pedestrians to cross. Why? You know, why you go over on you know in in Monklin, uh everything's there you know i have literally <laughs> never thought about that once in my life <laughs> like with regards to like street lines and stuff like i just never thought about it it was like it's, but, it's just but it's like it's those, probably are, like... <laughs> those are simple things that one will make people happy and two could possibly save a life so you're at you're at uh, uh, best, um, uh, what's it called there? Best, uh, right beside Monklin, Monklin Grill. Right. So from th uh, from there, all the way up to Walkley, so at the top of Walkley in Summerled, there's nothing there where the, the Jean Coutu and the and the province go, only nope. going west. So the pedestrians can walk across there. But if you want to walk that way, it's non-existent, okay? You've got uh, uh, Randall. Randall straight up and Summerlin, it's a giant four corner death trap to people. So I want to slow it down, put the yellow lines, put up those hundred dollar fines because people speed there. I've seen police fly by there at like 70, 80 kilometers an hour answering, you know, obviously some alarm, but there's people crossing the streets. They don't have time to stop at the intersection of going 80 kilometers an hour on a section where you should be going 40, right? right? There's a lot of people walking around there. So just those small things, uh, upkeeping uh, the the outside appearance of these you know small businesses on that strip, you know small business owners and restaurants uh, on that strip, uh, restaurant Tilos, uh, as well as uh, Olivia's, uh, the the uh, Indian uh, restaurant, where it's like they 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 need a little they need a little you know sprucing up. Yes, it's probably the landlords that would have to take care of that, but then the landlord has to get with the city to get, you know, the permit to be able to do this. But if they all collaborate together, you know, uh, uh, dark, you know, all, you know, black all around trimming, illuminating trimming on the outside of the upkeep, uh, you know, planters, three planters in those sections of the streets that are dangerous, that slows cars down, 
your yellow, you know, pedestrian $100 fines. Those are small things, but those are small things that will really, you know, make our community uh, uh, a lot happier. Um, the small upkeeps of the parks, regular maintenance of them. Uh, the, the I see they're doing the paving of the roads right now, which is a huge difference. Um, they explained to me, because I mentioned Walkley, I mentioned, you know, uh, Lower Randall uh, and Montclair and so on. They said, oh, it's not currently, you know, in this budget right now. You can bring it up again uh, to, you know, in the next uh, administration. It might go to next year. Uh, we're focused on uh, Isabella on, uh, you know, the, the, the other side, right? Um, but I see them doing Cavendish, which is great because that's a, a landmine that I'm sure people have, you know, broken a few, uh, few axles trying to dodge uh, all the multiple cracks and holes. So it's great that that's getting done. Um, and that's it. It's basically, uh, you know, it, it just really going back to that analogy, dusting off that book, wiping it off, cleaning the pages and bringing it back to what uh, it was. And, and bring it to a potential where the residents are actually, you know, more happier. They're happy now because, and, you know, what's not to be happy about here, but imagine how happy, you know, and again, I'm just a private citizen and I'm getting multiple emails, at least three a week about people. Oh, you know, this park over here. Oh, can you do this? Can you help me with that? Uh, let's talk about the skate park. I and mean, it's very endearing. You know, it's really, it's really cool. It's, it's, it's heartwarming. And, and I mean that from, you know, the bottom of my heart. But again, hey, it's just me. Like, I'm nobody special. These people could do the exact same thing. If we collectively, as a community, okay, they can do the exact same thing. What are you laughing for? <laughs> I'm in the hip hop community. That yeah. whole idea of these people could do the same thing is an extremely relatable sentiment. Uh, uh. <clears throat> so I'm not laughing in the sense of diminishing what you're saying. It's just, uh. it's actually really true. The number uh. of people <clears throat> that aren't willing to Google things and take uh. that four hours to go in that investigation. I, I went through this with online streaming. I uh. Ended up writing a 1400 word doc file to deal with the questions wow. asking me how to stream on Twitch. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I spent like months learning things, right? Like, that's how <laughs> I got. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I empathize entirely with the idea. But even as you're talking, I'm like, this is really nifty. I mean, yeah. I can say I didn't know about a charter, and sometimes you don't know what to Google, and that's a fair point. <clears throat> well, but, it, yeah, yeah. But even to that end, the fact that you found it like is wild to me. I would argue maybe your life experience has you thinking a little more policy than other people. So that's an advantage to you. But yeah. otherwise the overall sense of what you're saying does resonate with me. Like how is it even, even the other option is petitions because anyone else could have taken the petition route, which would have possibly led to the same results from what I understand. Months later. Right it's, now, it's still because, relative to 15 years. Well, yes, exactly. Um, because, you know, there was an election that was called, um, you know, any petitions, they're, they're not accepting petitions right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the change.org uh, petitions, they, they, they have no, um, you know, guts to them when it comes to, uh, you know, kind of uh, 
uh, coercing or, or, or wanting to create change at a city level. Yeah, um, Christian Arsenal had told us you need those postal codes. Yeah, because it, it, it adds more credence to then just a, a name on a, on a piece of paper. Right. Um, so it's, I'm actually uh, familiar with that. I had a, uh, a petition. It was a house of commons, uh, e-petition that was going, uh, around, uh, from May 26 until, uh, what well, was supposed to go on until August 26, uh, where we were asking the federal government, uh, to prohibit and ban systemic racism and racial uh, profiling by, um, you know, uh, organizations that fall under the public uh, safety act of, of Canada. And um, so this petition was endorsed by two members of uh, parliament, uh, Matthew Green, which is an NDP, and then uh, Greg Fergus, who's a, a Liberal Party member. So we were to collect 500 signatures. And what we were asking within the scope of that e-petition was all of these organizations, so, you know, the RCMP, Canada Customs, uh, you know, all the, the police bodies, uh, SCCM, they're all receiving funding, okay? What the details were in the petition was they obviously go through a uh, streaming process of approval before they're, they're you know, get that wire transfer of, you know, millions and millions of dollars with that check, right? So we just wanted to include that they had to have an action plan on fighting systemic racism and racial profiling, right? right. So if they have 10, uh, you know, checks that they have to go through, make an 11th and that 11th would, you have to have that action plan. If you don't have that action plan and you have all 10 others, but you don't have the 11th, we're not going to cut you that check. Right. Okay. Which is not a defund the police. It is a let's work with you police um, because you need, uh, you know, these funds to combat who you're saying are responsible for. You understand it's a, they, they, they're saying that, you know, visible minorities, blacks, et cetera, you know, they're the ones that are causing the, all, we don't have to go into that, but that's what's saying that, but you're not, populating money together to actually do something about it. You'd have zero action plans to actually try and work with the people that you're actually referencing and accusing of doing certain things or why you need the money. So, you know, there was no logic in that. So, you know, collectively we created this, uh, this e-petition, uh, which we were supposed to get 500 signatures, but uh, we were told by uh, Greg Fer Fergus, the Liberal uh, Member of Parliament, said that we are hearing through the grapevine that there's going to be an election called, you know, and and if that's the case, this e-petition will get thrown out, okay? And then you have to start all over again. So we didn't wow. get our 500 bloody signatures, and now we have to start all over again. But uh, it, it's okay. We, uh, you can look it up uh, on my site. You can Google it. Uh, it made its rounds, uh, you know, in regards to that. Another good thing, I started a, a nonprofit organization called the Red Coalition uh, uh, out of that, um, which is basically solely to combat, uh, you know, discrimination uh, and, and race, racism and racial profiling. And um, 
yeah, we're actually uh, have received an email from stopmtl.ca, which I think you heard of. Uh, they came out, uh, I think, about two months ago. Uh, it's an interactive map where people, all sorts, all colors, whoever, anybody who's driving a car can actually document in real time their uh, police interception on a map. And then in February, uh, they're going to release those results to the public uh, in a non-biased way where here are the results. That is a sincerely Montreal approach to that problem. Like we literally made a transit app that was basically the same concept. Like a, we don't trust the STM anymore. Mm. We're going to rely on us to feed when the mm. buses are coming. That's mm. amazing. Like, yeah, so it's stop MTL. I don't know if you heard of it or saw it, but I that's haven't heard of it there. before. Um, yeah. My life can be a little bit caught in the rabbit hole of what I do over here. So it's yeah. often times like this I get exposed to it. But that's, it's incredible how many things you're involved with. The one thing I definitely have to remember to ask is what – with all of your analytical mind, do you have any ideas for like the environments or the green actions that, uh, you know, the Lala district can take that you could like push forward? Yeah. Uh, so some of the spaces that are, um, you know, like I said, either government owned that are, or empty lots, so to speak, you know, you can turn that into, you know, places, uh, smaller parks, uh, where, you know, there's, there's room, you know, for expansion, there's room for growth, uh, you know, of greenery. Um, you know, we need to look at the whole, uh, you know, picture in regards to these uh, areas that can be transformed, um, you know, for the for the better, for, for the environment, as opposed to just, like I said, keeping it long grass, cement on the bottom, you know, blue bonnets, for example. Uh, you know, that's, geez, I'm 46 now. I, I, I went there once when they were actually doing horse racing. Uh, you know, I can't even remember how old I was. So, and, and how long it's been in, in that stage, right? So there's so many things that can be, uh, you know, done into in, that regard. So many empty lots, um, they can either be turned into, you know, affordable housing, uh, you know, environmentally friendly. Um, also, um, sort of has something to do with it. The cleanliness of the garbage bins and the recycling bins. Okay, I'm going to bring that up um, and give a, a, a shout out to a company that's actually on my uh, Facebook account. Um, I believe it's called, uh, actually, I don't remember. It's, it's anyways, it's a West Island uh, company where they started um, cleaning these bins and they have monthly contracts, uh, weekly contracts where um, these bins are being cleaned. And, you know, it, it, it all the the dirt and liquid goes they take the the water the dirty water that's clean and they go and they bring it to a filtration plant and put it in and then come out and then the water is is clean again right and so that's why i wanted to you know bring up in regards to the environment these i think it's a amazing idea i saw it a couple of weeks ago it was a, i think it was a montreal gazette uh, sort of post uh, on facebook uh, i wrote on the on the thing and and they wrote back thanks i said look i'd love to see what i can do because right now they're only on the west island um and, and they haven't kind of you know merged over here but you know the website i gotta i gotta find that website 
Um, but it's it's on my post uh, on my official page. You can see it. So I think that's important to bring you know a, a service like that to NDG and to the rest of Montreal because it's cleanliness, right? It all has to do with clean. It's just it's important for people to see their environment not only do good for it, but also the the appearance of it is actually being upkept. So this it's two birds with one stone. You're right. cleaning it. You can recycle the water, um, okay. and and you know it just. I wanna I wanna be able to um, make that happen not only for our district, but then have it kind of you know instilled in every other uh, borough because I think it's a great uh, policy that can you know do very 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 good for the environment. That's super dope. Honestly, like you had a lot of answers <laughs> like for things, actionable things. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just speak that language better, but it seemed a lot more concrete than other, not like to say other people, but just in general, anything I've heard about local city politics and more. Usually the elected people are vaguer because they have to be. And the candidates mm -hmm. don't have maybe the same practical get stuff done experience. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to hear your like take on how to tackle things and then obviously when you get to power it's it's a it's a different beast i understand that there's other people yeah. that aren't elected involved in this process that mm -hmm. may not have the same political motivations as the elected officials so it gets a little yeah. murkier but you do yeah. seem to have a good sense of dealing with people experience that comes with it all too well that's that's my uh my instagram what's my instagram handle I know I looked at it, but I cannot remember it. It's, it's Dealmaker 001. <laughs> so it's, you know, it, and that's what it is. At the end of the day, you know, there's always, it takes two to tango. There's two sides to tango, um, you know, in business and life, you know, and, and um, it, it's, again, I'm, I, I'm an open book. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm extremely visible online. So, you know, if people didn't, you know, catch, uh, everything that I'm saying now, everything is very easily Googleable, if that's a word. Um, you know, my site, joelndg.com or joeldebelfi.com, um, you know, all the press releases and everything, or pictures about me. So, and I, I and, and, you know, once in office, um, you know, hopefully there's no uh, real constraints where I can't, uh, you know, communicate, uh, you know, properly how I'm communicating now. Um, you know, with uh, constituents, uh, because it's very important for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm reachable all the time, uh, you know, email, uh, phone, WhatsApp, uh, Facebook, all my platforms. Uh, it, it's something that I would like to continue and would continue. Uh, because again, at the end of the day, we're all in this thing called life together, right? And, and we've got to learn to thrive together um, you know, even if you don't want to, it's you, 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 you do what you got to do, right? You got to do, everybody does what they need to do to be able to put that foot forward when they get up in the morning. Right. And to me, that's extremely important. And, you know, why not, why not want to have, uh, you know, your surroundings looking good. Why not walk down the street and be able to wave to somebody and they wave back to you and you don't know them from Adam. Right. And, you know, go to the grocery store and, you know, stuff is clean. Walk down the street, not seeing, you know, garbage on the floor where you got to spend, you know, two hours yourself. True story. 
you know, and pick up, you know, garbage areas and, and, and clean it up and, you know, put on gloves and like, yeah. it, it's these, I'm not doing anything that, you know, the average Joe uh, cannot do. Um, you know, I'm doing it for one. I, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to see that. Right. So it has zero to do with politics. I'm that person. I will go out there to the end and do what I need to do to accomplish what I need to accomplish. Uh, and, and I don't stop and, you know, and I don't give up as you saw my 12 years of fighting, you know, a municipality. So, uh, I, I have patience. Honestly, even thriving in traffic tech takes a, from what I understand, it's not the simplest thing to thrive in. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I got out of that, that business and, uh, you know, it's uh, just jumped into something, you know, something absolutely completely different because it's, you know, you learn and I love to learn. I love to, you know, understand, uh, you know, people uh, be able to communicate to them have because it, it gives you a, a glimpse into possibly what's going on in their life. And, you know, you can maybe help them um, by possibly noticing, uh, you know, something, you know, and, right. and to me, that's, that's really important. Um, like I said, I'm adopted. Yes, I found my biological family. I was living in Dorval. They were living in Cote d'Ange, right, right across the street over there. And, um, you know, that affected me emotionally and as a person because it defined me. Uh, you know, it was basically two pieces of the puzzle that were coming together. You know, I was, you know, raised for 18 or 19 years of my life uh, not knowing who I was essentially. And then, you know, the other half, uh, you know, meeting and, 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 you know, my biological family and then finding out that I had friends that actually knew them, but didn't put the two and two together. Um, but it, it just, it completed me and it made me as one. So, right. you know, the two sides collided and, and it made me who I am now and, and made me realize uh and, and wake up to that you know it's just just tr try and do good uh you know be your be your best person put your your your, your best foot forward and uh and just just enjoy and 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 you know not everything has to be so you know because when these people that are doing chuk 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 chuk, when they go home, they're kicking up their feet, they're cracking open a beer, they're doing whatever they need to do, like everybody else does. But then when they go back in, it's that, you know, they're chuk 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 chuk. no, like again, dummy it down a bit. Um, you know, we've just are and are still going through a global pandemic that in our lifetime we have. This will hopefully be the only one that we're going through, but it's given a lot of people the time to reflect on who they are as an individual, what they want to do in life, what they uh, wish they did in life, but maybe are running out of time to do. It's given a lot of people the absolute uh, time to reflect on how to better themselves as a person. So I think that this uh, uh, municipal election is going to be extremely interesting so much that you know you're rolling up your arms and you're getting popcorn because it's gonna be i think it's gonna be something very interesting because we're all extremely all parties are extremely different um there's a lot of diversity uh you know in regards to the candidates 
uh, you know, visually, a lot of uh, ethnicities that are coming into play. I would play. say every party decided to, to at least try to go in that direction a little more this time. Yeah, and, and, and it's great. It, it is absolutely wonderful. Whatever motives they may be, if it's for the... <laughs> Hey, look, I mean, you got to... It's honest. Gotta it's a it very it's honest, honest situation. If there are motives, and if there are not motives, it's still a good thing to see because it defines the city of Montreal, that we are all different, that we are all unique. We're all shapes and sizes, colors, heights, widths, whatever you want. We're all different. And that is a first, uh, you know, including federal, you know, so... Basically, that's going to give people a very, eh, let's say entertaining, but more of a unique uh, mindset to when they get to the polls. As right? I understand it correctly, a lot of colors that are not mine have commonly stated, I don't see myself represented there, so I don't give a and end it. And so this at least allows you to see people of all ethnicities pretty much all over the city on these posters, I imagine, after the federal ones disappear. Yeah, I, I'm sure that it will jog a few of those people's thoughts that, hey, maybe maybe I shouldn't think this way. Maybe maybe why all of these people that aren't you <laughs> are coming uh, uh, to, you know, to the table to, you know, raise their hand is is actually going to be actionable and and really actually create change. It's different. Like I said, we have never gone through this pandemic. None of us, nobody listening to this, nobody in the world in their lives have gone what everybody has had to gone through in the last year and a half, almost two years. So we don't know what's around the corner. And, and, and I strongly believe that it's going to play a major factor in the election because people have more time to stay at home, read, inquire, research, uh, listen, and and they're gonna they're becoming smarter and more in tuned to their surroundings and what's actually is going on, and that's gonna play, I believe, an important factor in in this election this year, you know, and I think it's gonna be one of those, uh, you know. Uh, you know, bookie type things where you can, you know, it's going to be, you know, one to 10,000 or one to like, it's really the odds I think are going to just take people by surprise. Uh, I strongly believe that. And, and why it's because people uh, by their actions and through their actions are demanding change, whether through their voice, uh, whether it's online or whether it's subliminal, it's all happening. There's a buzz in the city right now. Right. Uh, good or bad, there is a, a, you know, kind of, you know, you walk under multiple hydro lines, you hear that going on. That is what's happening in this city uh, today and now because we have had time for that reflection on ourselves as human beings, as people, as people residing in this great city of Montreal. And it's going to be a surprise. I think it's going to be a major surprise uh, in November, and it'll be surprised for the better because it's what the people want. It's what they will dictate to the current administration. I'm, and I'm talking here in CDNNDG, as well as, you know, the city of Montreal. Things will change for the better. Um, we're more enlightened and in tuned to what's happening because we had that, that 
time out, so to speak, to gather our thoughts uh, of bettering ourselves. That's really fair. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. I am not 100% sure what else to ask you at this point. I think you have effectively expressed both your life and the way you approach things, which is super nifty to see. Um, I don't know. It's, it was a good interview. <laughs> it was a good conversation. <laughs> it was great. Um, you can to me anytime, my friend. You definitely have your links below in the description, so they got it, but uh, joelndg.com. That one was yeah. stuck with me. Um, but with that, um, do you have any like last thoughts or anything you want to impart to the people? <clears throat> uh, sure. Just you know, just just go to the polls with a you know with an open uh, mind. Uh, check out uh, movementmtl.com. Uh, it will give you more insight into the uh, party's uh, you know policies and uh, strategies to uh, to our campaign. Uh, visit uh, joelndg.com. Uh, to familiarize yourself with me as a person, my companies, um, you know, and, and essentially what I've gone through, some of my views. Uh, it's very intriguing. I actually, ironically, uh, received a phone call probably a couple of hours before uh, doing this interview uh, from um, Canel uh, um, Media. Uh, basically, it's a French uh, uh, station, uh, Savoir Media. Uh, it's basically a French station that wanted some, you know, information uh, on me as well. So there'll be multiple uh, opportunities to kind of uh, get to know me, uh, you know, as a person. Uh, again, my phone is, is always open. My email, joel at mariana.ca, uh, is, is there to receive your emails. Uh, WhatsApp me. Uh, reach me on my Facebook account. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm there for, for anybody. And like I said, keep an open mind when you go to the elections. Mouvement Montreal, uh, we're an extremely diverse uh, and in-tuned uh, political party that is not like the others. Um, and you have somebody that has already uh, managed to demonstrate as a private citizen uh, what my capabilities are in regards to how to getting things done. And uh, I will continue to do that uh, once in office. That's incredible, Joe. And thank you for being here. And thank all y'all for watching this, too, because at the end of the day, there's been Thanks people watching, and that's yeah. incredible. Um, make sure to you know check out all his links and stuff. And for those of you watching in the future, like, comment, subscribe, all that good YouTube stuff. On that note, everyone, it's been a pleasure to have you all here. Again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for doing this, Joe. Like, it does mean a lot to me. Like, it's kind of like, from my end, it's like, yo, how am I talking to local politician? Anyway, so it's like, it's really cool <laughs> well, that we're all you're, you're doing something right. You probably woke up on the wrong side of the bed one day and it was for the better. That's facts, that. man. <laughs> so, yeah, and I appreciate that. Shout out to everyone who watched. I see DJ Hyperactive just shut up. There's some, there's actually people here to check it out. Like, people have like, getting interested in it so i'm really glad that y'all are participating with me great. um i don't know so i guess with that live long and prosper everyone it's been a great time mm -hmm.